Good morning, Highland. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And if uh, you're joining us for the first time, I am delighted that you're in this space. I'm excited for what God can do in your world and, and the journey that's beginning maybe just today. Uh, so we are deeply glad that you're here if you're visiting with us. We're in a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, before we jump into the sermon, I just want to reiterate what uh, the Siddham said. Uh, maybe, maybe this year for Lent, it's time to leave something behind. It's drop something and keep it away. Maybe, you know, it's that, that sense of, of uh, that critical nature that you hold the most dear or that cynical nature that kind of keeps you at arm's length from everything. Maybe it's time to leave something behind. Um, and as Leah said, maybe that's just a piece of luggage that's sitting in your uh, closet. It's just taking up space. It's no good for anything. It's, it's too big to go on the overhead bin. It's too small to be useful for a long trip. Uh, bring it this uh, Wednesday, and uh, let's give it to someone who desperately needs it. We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and last week, if you missed, what, where we ended up was to say that Jesus said that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, exceeding righteousness. Now, if we were Jesus' first hearers, if we were sitting on the mountain as, as he's telling this story, we would think to ourselves, that's impossible. You can't do that. The Pharisees had the lock on getting living right, and the, the, the scribes had interpretation of the Torah right. You can't do both of those things at the same time. It's like trying to look good and make a cognitive argument at the same time. It's just too difficult. Unless you're David Pittman. He does it all the time. But for the rest of us, that's like impossible for us. Righteousness, first service thought that was hilarious. You guys are asleep. Somebody needs some, uh, I need some help, somebody. All right, righteousness that follows Christ must first be internal and eternal before it can be external. It's got to be inside. And you have to have your eyes on the horizon of heaven before it plays out in your life. And the problem with this, the problem with this is that it's so easy to fake external righteousness. It's so easy to have that, that pause in your speech or that, that kind, I'm going to be praying for you, brother, when you don't have a prayer life at all. It is so easy to look righteous in our world with no depth whatsoever. And Jesus says, if you really want to look like me, if you really want to be a disciple, let it first start with your heart. Because what Jesus is talking about here is transformation. Jesus doesn't want you just to obey the rules. Jesus doesn't want you to look like a good Christian. Jesus wants your heart and your mind to be renewed by the power of the Spirit. And God will settle for nothing less. God will call you deeper and deeper and deeper. It's kind of like that movie Inside Out. Do you remember that movie? It was this little girl. Her name is Riley, and basically the movie is about uh, internal systems theory of her emotions. And if you could get inside of her brain, what you would see is these characters, right? And they were playing out her emotions. There was disgust, there was fear, there was sadness, there was joy, and then there was anger. And they, 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 they speak, and they kind of have these control panels where they push the buttons that, 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 that control what Riley does. And Riley's in this hard spot because she's just moved to a new city and she's worried about new friends and she's worried about what her parents are going to do and she's worried about what the future holds for her. And so all of her emotions are all in turmoil. 
And then she has this one little emotion, and he's anger. He's this little short red guy. And he's voiced by Lewis Black, who is like the embodiment of comedic rage. And when anger goes off, his little head blows like a torch. And this movie is about growing up, and it's about loss and joy in the face of grief and learning to deal with your emotions. And if you watch Inside Out closely, and you, you watch the end credits, it kind of gives you a view not only into Riley's head, but into everybody's head. You get to see how the, the, the emotions work in, his, in her mother and in her father and then all these other random people. And there's this guy, if you're not paying attention, you miss it. It's this bus driver and he's, he's stuck in San Francisco traffic. There's the Lombard, uh, uh, the cutbacks that go back and forth and, and he can't move and there's people honking and people flashing their lights and, and, and you look at his control panel and there's not five emotions there. It's just anger, 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 anger. And, and they want to play a happy memory but it's the wrong happy memory and then his whole head blows. And I wonder what happened to that bus driver that one by one by one, every emotion is replaced with anger. Even joy gets replaced with anger. We know from psychology that anger is a secondary emotion, which means it's a reaction to something else you fear. It's not the primary cause, but it's, it's how, you, how you respond to that primary cause. Another way to think about anger is that it's our natural reaction to perceived injustice. When you think something's wrong in the world, what you feel in your heart is anger. And so anger by itself is, is, is morally neutral. It's neither bad nor good. And you see this not only in human beings, but you see this in the animal world as well. I watched this uh, experiment on YouTube, and it was this ch these two chimpanzees, and they were in these acrylic clear boxes. So they could see one another, and they could see the researcher, and the researcher had trained these chimpanzees to, to do this uh, action to get a treat. He would give them this like marble, this ball, and they would take the ball and they'd put it in this spot and then the ball would roll down and when the ball rolled down and got to the end, they would give them a treat. It's a very simple uh, response move. And, and the, uh, the, the chimpanzees began to love this deal because when they got the ball and they put it in the right spot, they got a retreat. So much so that before the ball had even finished rolling down the ramp, they had their hand ready to receive. And these, these two chimpanzees, they could see one another. And this is where the experiment began. The first monkey receives the ball, it rolls down the hill, it gets the treat. The second monkey receives the ball, it rolls down the ramp, but it gets two treats. The first chimpanzee notices. First chimpanzee receives the ball, it rolls down the ramp, receives a treat. Second chimpanzee receives the ball, it rolls down the ramp, gets two treats. At this point, the first chimpanzee is agitated. One more time, the experiment happens. And when the second chimpanzee gets two treats, the first monkey's head blows in fire. It flips out. It goes bananas. Because it knows it is, it is experiencing unfair reward. 
It's, un, it's unjust. They're, they're getting twice as much pay for equal work. It's, it's, it's unjust. I know exactly what this feels like because I was a middle child. I was keenly aware of injustice. I was keenly aware of who got the bigger piece of cake. I was keenly aware of who got more attention from mom and dad. Um, I, was, I was keenly aware of who got greater freedom or greater opportunity. It got as bad as counting gifts at Christmas. It is the plight of a middle child to feel anger. And part of this is because anger feels powerful. Um, it's incredibly difficult to sit with sadness grief sit with shame or loneliness or fear it's hard to stay there because these are vulnerable places now we know that god finds us in vulnerable places uh, but it's much easier to move to anger because anger is our shield against feeling bad and we miss god when we move to anger too quickly in some ways in america i think anger is the only safe emotion for a man to express. I don't think there's very many spaces where they can express sadness or disappointment or fear. But you get mad, you get respected. And anger on the positive side is the emotion that more than anything else calls for action. Anger demands movement, to speak, to do something, especially, and I think this is the healthiest form of anger, when you, when you witness it on behalf of the powerless, when you see someone else being persecuted, when you see somebody else being hurt, when you, say, when you stand up and say, this isn't right, that may be the healthiest form and expression where God intended anger to function. After all, Jesus gets angry. And so we turn our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord from 5 beginning in verse 21. You've heard it said, do not, uh, it was said of those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable for judgment. And if you insult a brother and sister, you will uh, be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the fire of hell the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember your brother or sister has something against you, stop. Leave your gift and before, there before the altar and, and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser um, while you're on the way to court with them so that your accuser may, uh, your, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, it is clear to me in my time of quiet this week that I am a person of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips, and that my heart is not ready for you. That in our lives, and in our tongues, and in our, our souls, we harbor resentment and anger. And so, Father, I, I call upon the the purifying work of your Holy Spirit to cleanse us.
to make us new. Shape us into the image of your son, Jesus. Transform us by the power of your love. We may be people of peace. And Father, to that end, as, I, as we turn our hearts and minds to your word, I pour you pray from, through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, amen. All right, so it's, it's clear what the priority here is in Matthew chapter 5. Right relationship with God is predicated upon having a right relationship with your neighbors. And there's really no way around it. You can't have a good relationship with God until you live at peace with those that are around you. And so anger, calling a friend a fool or denigrating them in your heart or in your mind, in God's point of view, that's the same thing as murder. And this teaching and the, and the one that follows it on lust, they have this one thing in common. And the thing that they have in common is this idea of lingering. It's not the first look that sets your heart on some destructive pathway regarding lust. It's not that you happen to walk down the street and you see something. It's, it's when you let your mind linger on that thing. You can barely go into public or turn on a television without seeing some sort of anger or some sort of, 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 of lust that, 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 that it happens to you. You can't help that. What you can help is how much time you allow your mind to dwell on anger. Maybe it's something as simple as someone cuts you off in traffic and your adrenaline surges in that moment and, and you feel this burst of anger because that, that 15 feet in front of you, that's your space. That's kind of your property in your head and they violated that. They took something from you. It's an act of injustice. And you can let that moment pass or you can dwell on it. You can allow your heart to linger and begin to fantasize about stepping on the gas, passing in front of that person, and cutting them off, because that'll show them, right? Jesus is clearly making an important, point, an important point here, that anger and malice in one's heart are cancers. And over time, that cancer is going to metastasize and grow. And it can be deadly to both those holding the anger and those to whom against the anger is spent. It is deadly to the individual holding the anger because, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., it distorts the personality and it can destroy the very center of your creative response to both life and the universe. This is how the bus driver in Inside Out only has one emotion because anger has destroyed all those other parts of his self. And it's deadly toward the person to whom the anger is directed because anger uh, festers and metastasizes and turns to vengeance and seeks ways of expression that are destructive, even violence. I think my first experience with this kind of malice, this deep rage that can rest in a person's heart that turns to vengeance was in middle school when I read Edgar Allan Poe's A Cast of Amontillado. Amontillado. It's, it's, a, it's a short story, and it's Edgar Allan Poe, which is about his... Uh, cringy as I got in middle school. Maybe a little black eyeliner would have been a step further. I never got that far. But the first line of a cast of Amontillado, and that's a, that's a very expensive wine. The very first line is, the thousand injuries of Fortunato, that's a character. I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. And the story is very simple. 
It's told from the perspective of the murderer, and he takes Fortunato, he lures Fortunato down into his cellar, almost this catacomb, uh, because he says, I have this very rare and expensive wine, sir. You must taste it with me. But in his heart, he intends to kill him. And he gives Fortunato almost a, a chance to escape every step of the way. It's almost like the murderer wants to blame him for coming with him. He doesn't want to be responsible for, for that guilt. He says, well, maybe we should leave, or maybe it's too damp down here. Maybe, maybe we should go a different day. But Fortunato, he, he wants to taste the wine, and, and down in the bottom, in the depths of the cellar, there is no wine at all but a chain. And he is bound, and then bricked into the wall, and bones piled there and man my middle school mind went nuts at that but reading it as an adult there's a new line that sticks out to me now it's not the first line of the story it's, it's the last because the murderer whom we followed down he says it was 50 years ago that this event happened and I think about it all the time that he still holds that anger the malice and the rage even though it's been so long it's contempt Contempt more than any other feeling is what destroys relationships. John Gottman, who's a, a marriage and family researcher, he identified these kind of these four feelings that are actually going to really destroy any sort of relationship. And contempt is the strongest predictor of divorce more than anything else. And at the Gottman Institute, they got really good at predicting how long marriages are going to last by gauging how much contempt was present in a conversation. And they got so good at it that they could watch a videotape. They didn't even have to be live. A videotaped conversation, of any day ordinary conversation, of two people that were in a relationship. And they could count how much contempt was in the statements that they said and in their facial expressions. And they could predict with startling accuracy which marriages would end a divorce in the next five years. Which marriages would fail? It was shocking to me when I first found out about this. Contempt will kill a relationship faster than anything else in the universe. And occasionally the Gottmans were wrong. And when they were wrong, there was almost always one predictor. If they were wrong and they saw a lot of contempt and somebody else, and, and, and that couple was able to stay married, it was not because of any other thing other than grace. Something happened in the relationship that broke the cycle. Something happened in the relationship that flipped the script. Instead of conflict moving toward hurting, it became about conflict moving them toward healing. Instead of an opportunity for separation, it became an opportunity to connect. Because I've heard it said this way, you know, a new relationship has one kind of argument 50 different ways, and an old relationship has 50 different arguments one way. 
A relationship that's been a, that has existed for a while is going to form a script, and it doesn't matter if this is your parent or someone you work with or someone you live with or someone that you're, is your, your child or someone that you're married to. You're going to form this script about the conflict, and, and you, eventually you know your part, and they know their lines, and you can just say them back and forth without even thinking. It gets to the point in your relationship where you just say, why don't we just skip to the end where we start hurting each other just so that we can watch TV after it's over. And there's this sense in which anger in the relationship, it's like, it's like being arrested. I don't know if you've ever been arrested before, but you've probably seen it happen on a video or on TV. And what you see when you see a, a real person, not an actor, but a real person being arrested, especially a person that feels contempt or kind of this vile situation or maybe a, a sense of privilege is when they're speaking to the police is that they're all bluster and they're all grandeur until the moment the cuffs go on their wrist. And in that moment, the cuffs go on their wrist. They realize as they're, putting into, they're being put into the police car that their whole life is about to change, Right? They realize that they're about to go to, to county and the next 24 hours is going to be very different than what they expected. And they're about to be brought into the criminal justice system and, and a judge is going to make decisions for them and a jury is going to make decisions for them that they may not necessarily want. They lose a lot of autonomy in the moment those cuffs click on their wrists. In a positive way, it's also kind of what happens when you step into an ER. When you go into the emergency department and you move past from the waiting room to the back room, all of a sudden a lot of things start happening to you. Blood is being taken and doctors are doing assessments and x-rays may be coming in and you don't have a lot of autonomy while you're in there in the emergency department. A lot of things are just going to go their course. And that's kind of the way it is with anger. And I think this is why Jesus says, look, Deal with it before it takes you to the place where you lose the control. Deal with your anger before it takes you to court. When a relationship is healed, it's healed because of grace. It's because somebody stopped the script. It's because somebody interrupted the pathway and created something new in the relationship that was good and holy and meaningful. But grace that is interrupted, that is no longer passed along, is no longer grace. So Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Did you know that the altar is the oldest piece of human furniture? Altars may have been the first piece of furniture that human ever created. And the, the Jewish Midrash claims that the universe sits on God's altar. If our whole hearts have not been offered to God, if we see, keep kind of trying to keep some part of it back so that we can hold on to our anger, then God does not want our sacrificial service or our songs. Nor does God desire our prayers and praise if we don't give our whole heart to divine love first. There is no placating the God who was and is and shall forever be loved. No bargaining God by saying, hey, you know, I'm going to increase my giving this year or I'll offer to teach Sunday school. I'll even go on the middle school retreat. And you should go on the middle school retreat. I'll promise to preach better sermons. 
but just let me hold on to my anger. Let me keep my bitterness or my willingness, unwillingness to forgive. And Jesus says, no. Leave your gift at the altar and go make peace first. Ed Welch wrote this fantastic book called A, a Small Book About a Big Problem. And it's, it's about the topic of anger. And anger often, but not always, comes from the wrong disposition toward ourselves and God. We often get angry when we don't feel like we get our due or experience disrespect from others or even refer, uh, refer the pain of sorrow or disappointment into a more convenient and socially acceptable channel. Sometimes, like so many things in life, our anger comes down to an underestimation of what God's grace can do and an overestimation of ourselves. Colfiex says it this way. We might expect Jesus to say at the end of this teaching, so don't be angry with other people. Or even, when you're wrong, don't let anger get a foothold in your heart. But instead, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, therefore or before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. And if you're tracking with the analogy, you gotta notice that the situation is flipped from what we might expect. What Jesus doesn't say is, so when someone has wronged you, even though this is when we're most likely to be angry is someone has wronged us, he says, so when you have wronged someone else, and you have to notice, like, this is backwards in the text. It is counterintuitive. But Jesus is teaching us that working on our anger actually starts in situations where we have wronged someone else. Diffusing anger starts by learning to be forgiven, not just in learning how to forgive. When we know what it feels like to be forgiven, we start to siphon off the reservoir of anger that we have inside. And if you've ever spent any time in a long-term relationship and you've accelerated your way down the script because you know where this is going to end and the partner that you're fighting with forgives unexpectedly, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. We live in a strikingly angry culture right now. We live in a culture that's lost its ability to pause and reflect on right action. And you see this from every videotaped incidents of road rage or those people that get into fights at grocery stores because they, they get into an argument with somebody else in their shopping cart. And you have to kind of wonder when you're watching those videos, what kind of tainted well has been feeding us for all this time? What kind of tainted environment are we living in? Here's the difference between righteous anger and destroying your neighbor. It's a pause. It's a moment to reflect. And, and when you're first in the script, you have that moment to reflect. You have that moment to pause. You have that moment to think, do I really want to say this? Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to feel this? You have that moment to ask yourself that question, and you have the control 
to choose what happens there, but over and over, the deeper of the groove in your mind that you create when you don't pause to reflect, when you don't think about it, when you just allow the anger to boil up and go, that's how we end up with fistfights at United. Because people don't pause to think, nah, I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to forgive. But somehow the miracle of grace, the miracle of forgiveness, whether you've experienced that through the power of God or through the power of someone that loves you deeply, gives you that breath. And that's really all you need. That's really the difference. It's, it's, it's two breaths, in, out, in, out, to give you just enough space to choose to do what God desires. It's just two breaths. I grew up in a, a church of Christ that offered an altar call every Sunday. Whether everyone there was already baptized or not, we offered, offered actually we didn't call it an altar call because that's what the Baptists did. We offered an invitation. It was a little bit different, right? Um, and, and in the course of, of, of my growing up, there was only like maybe once or twice a year where someone would ever be come forward. It was for two reasons. It's because they were 12 or 13 and they were ready to be baptized or they were older and it was about to get really juicy. That was an exciting days. No, but the, 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 it doesn't matter if the sermon was about, you know, the budget for this year or actually some sort of call to be transformed. It always, the sermon always ended the same way. It was an invitation to come forward, to encounter God. It would end with the same line, as we stand and as we sing. Or let us stand and let us sing. And I think Jesus in this text offers a little different altar call. I think the invitation is not to go forward. I think this week we want to ask you to go out, to seek reconciliation, to practice two breaths, to maybe let anger not drive the bus in your heart anymore. Maybe it's time to be transformed. Will you stand for our benediction? Highland, I want you to imagine for me just a moment how the world might be transformed if this church learned to do two breaths before they acted or spoke in malice, called their brother and sister a fool. Imagine how this world might be transformed with God's love. So this week, breathe. Two breaths in and out and go with the grace of God.